You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Good morning, church. Uh, Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Our passage this morning comes from Isaiah, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, They each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, his glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Uh, look, before we kick in, I know that uh, Isaiah's been a kind of new sort of book for a lot of us to look at. It's a, it's a prophecy. It's a big one. It feels different even. Uh, and so if you've been with us, you might have had some senses of what this book has, how it struck you. So can I invite you now just for 30 seconds or so, just to turn to the people around you uh, and share with each other, what's one thing that God has been teaching you through Isaiah? What's one thing that God has been teaching you through Isaiah? Now, if you're a newcomer uh, and you haven't heard any of our sermons on Isaiah, that's okay. 
someone near you who is a regular here will spot you, Lord willing, and turn around and share with you what they've been learning uh, from Isaiah. Okay, so I'm just going to give you 30 seconds or so. What's one thing that God has been teaching you through Isaiah? And if, you're, if you see someone new, go say hi to them. I wonder what you shared with each other. I was just talking to uh, Joanna over there, and for her, I think she really captured it for us. She goes, um, the thing that stands out in this series is actually that picture, that picture that uh, Robbie Chen designed for us, uh, and, and we really value Robbie and the, other, and the rest of the comms team as they service in that way. It's a picture of a city that is so dark and far from God. A city that's so broken, so destitute, so sinful, and yet if you look in the reflection, you see a vision of what it could be, a vision of what God is doing among his people. So I think that really stands for so many of us. But, but as we think about that top picture of, of a city in darkness, let me ask you a question. Have, have you ever stood in the midst of nature in the thick of night? You're far from the street lamps, far from the headlights, far from the glow of the city. You're literally in the dark. And it feels as if you're totally blind, doesn't it? You're exposed to the elements, you're vulnerable to danger with no way of perceiving the threat. And in that moment, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by the darkness. But then you look up and you see stars. Stars in their multitudes, scarce to be counted, filling the darkness with order and light. It's this beautiful sight that, that almost takes you to another world. It's a vision so big that it makes all your fears seem so small. See, moments ago, you might have felt overwhelmed by the darkness. But, but do you realize that it's actually against the darkest night sky that the stars shine most brightly? Sure. Well, when you look around, when you look into the darkness, all you see are your problems. But when you look up, it's as if the stars dispel the darkness. You know, in Isaiah 1 to 5, it's as if we've been looking into the night, isn't it? We've been looking at a dark vision of that city, a city with bloody hands, a proud heart, and a self-indulgent life. A, a city, a people who deserve God's wrath and judgment. And I don't know how you felt. As we've looked into the night of Judah's spiritual condition, you might have felt totally overwhelmed by the darkness convicted of sin, somewhat even depressed at the sight of our own hearts. But now, in chapter 6, we look up and we see not stars, but we see a blazing sun, a sun so radiant that its light dispels the darkness. This vision in chapter 6, it's, it's so important because it's set against the darkness of Isaiah 1 to 5. And it is the first of many stars that will shine through chapters 7 to 12. You see, in this picture that we've just heard before, Isaiah wants to show us not a dark vision of Judah. No, we've seen that in chapters 1 to 5. Now, 
He wants us to behold a glorious vision of God. I just love it. Uh, in verse 5, the prophet says these words, My eyes have seen the king. And when he's seen the king in all his beauty, suddenly all his fears just fade away. The light of God's beauty dispels the darkness of his fears. And in this vision, it's as if Isaiah looks at every single one of us and says, stop looking into the darkness. Stop tunnel visioning at your sins and your fears. No, lift your eyes and see. See the king in all his beauty. Look at everything in light of our holy God. So this is what I want to show you today. I want to show you this majestic vision in three parts. A holy God, a sinful prophet, and a difficult message. A holy God, a sinful prophet, and a difficult message. And then at the very end, I want to step back and I want to ask this question. What might it look like for you and me to live in light of that great vision? Well, look with me. Our vision opens in verses 1 to 4 with this radiant picture of a holy God. But just like the stars are set against the night sky, this radiant picture of a holy God is set against one of the darkest moments in Judah's history. It's 783 BC. And King Uzziah has died. You see, this king, he reigned over Judah with peace and prosperity for half a century, 52 years. It wasn't perfect. There was a lot about Uzziah that was sinful, but he was safe. And now the king is dead. And a new power is rising in the east. Assyria is growing in strength, threatening every nation in the region. You see, at least when Uzziah was alive, Jerusalem was safe. But now the king is dead. And Jerusalem is exposed, vulnerable, and afraid. And I wonder if you were one of the people of Jerusalem, what you would be doing. Surely every day you'd be looking out your window, staring into the east, wondering when will Assyria come? They're, they're, they're paralyzed by fear. It's as if they're transfixed at the prospect of their own destruction. The moment something is so terrifying that you cannot help but look at it. Jerusalem is overwhelmed by the darkness. But then they look up and they see the king. And it's a powerful sight that almost takes them to another world. The vision's so big that it makes Assyria feel so small. It's as if Isaiah breaks their gaze away from their dead king Uzziah. He, he breaks their gaze away from the powerful king of the east in Assyria. And he lifts their eyes and fixes their sights on God, the king of this world. It's as if he says to you and me, 
Don't look at them. Look up and see your king. You see, this king is seated on a high and lofty throne above Jerusalem, above Assyria. Gosh, he's so big that the hem of his robe, the train of his robe fills the temple. Seraphim, that are angels of fire, they're standing above him and their wings are covering their faces as if to shield themselves from the sight of his glory. This king is so holy, so pure, so righteous that not even the angels of heaven can look upon him. And yet that's exactly what Isaiah wants us to do. And I want you to see each seraph calls to the other in a song of of antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. That that word holy, it's a special word. It's a word like no other. It's a word reserved for God alone. A word that describes him as being totally unlike us. It's a word that describes his deity, his his righteousness, his his purity and his perfection. But I want you to see, it's not enough for the angels to simply say, holy. It's not even enough, and it doesn't even do justice to our God, for the angels to say, holy, holy. No, 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 the angels must stop, pause, and then sing in super superlative praise, holy, holy. Holy, holy. God is the most righteous, the most pure, the most perfect king. He's totally unlike King Uzziah who lies in the grave. He's totally unlike the king of Assyria who might be powerful but is not good. He is totally unlike us. For he is God. And his glory, his his presence, his reign, it extends, I want you to see, not just over Judah. His glory fills the whole earth. Can you see the, the, the magnitude of the picture that Isaiah is painting here? As you stare at the body of your dead king Uzziah, as you look at the threat of the king of Assyria, You'd be forgiven for feeling overwhelmed by the darkness. But do not be afraid. Because God is the king over every king and his kingdom will have no end. And in verse 4, it's as if the whole earth is now God's temple and its foundations are trembling at the power of our king. You might remember back when Israel fled Egypt in the Exodus, God protected his people in fire and the cloud. And now God fills the whole earth again with fire and smoke. It's as if God is saying, wherever you might be, in Judah or out of Judah, in Assyria or in Babylon, whichever king might threaten you, whichever king of yours might be dead, I will protect you. I will protect you. Friends, can you see this vision of a holy God? A God whose super superlative holiness is shown in fire. 
in the words of Exodus 24, our God is a consuming fire. It's a powerful vision of God, isn't it? But I wonder if you can see what Isaiah is trying to get us to do here. He's saying, stop looking at your dead King Uzziah. Stop looking at the powerful king of Assyria. It only leaves you feeling afraid. No, look up. Look up and see the king. Look up and see the king in his holiness. The king over every king. The Lord over every Lord. And when you do, the light of his holiness, will, will, it'll dispel the darkness. It'll drive away your every fear. Our God is a consuming fire. Nothing can stand against him. He is so great that the kings of this world will just feel so small. Turn your eyes upon him. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, now that Isaiah's eyes have seen a a holy God, now in verses 5 to 7, he looks at himself. And what does he see? He sees a sinful prophet. It's ironic, isn't it? The sun is so powerful. The sun is good. The sun gives life to our world. Without the sun, everything would cease to exist. And yet, what will happen if we fly too close to the sun? What do you think will happen? Just like Icarus will be destroyed. Because we've seen that the sun is a consuming fire. And when Isaiah looks up and he sees the holiness of his king, he is like Icarus who who cannot fly too close to the sun. Just look at what he says. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. You know, throughout the Bible, our lips, they represent our heart. They literally tell the world who it is that we trust. In Isaiah 36.5, this is what the king of Assyria asks Hezekiah. Do you think, literally, that the words of your lips are a plan or power for war? Now, who do you trust since you have rebelled against me? Friends, can you see the connection between our lips and our trust? Who we trust in our hearts is who we call on with our lips. And and Isaiah is a man of unclean lips, a man of an unfaithful heart, a man who relies on anyone but his holy God. So when he looks up and he sees God in all his holiness, and then he looks in and sees him in all of his uncleanness, he cries out in despair, I am ruined. For God's consuming fire, it won't just judge the nations, it'll judge me. I'm just like Assyria in many ways. I'm a man under judgment. 
Hebrews 12.14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Well, Isaiah is not holy. And yet his eyes have seen the Lord. So he cannot live. He's ruined. Can you see, friends, God's holiness, on the one hand, it is our great help. For God will consume the nations. And yet God's holiness is also our great problem. For unless we are holy, it will also consume us. You and I, all of us, we have unclean lips and an unfaithful heart, and we will not live. It gets worse. In verse 6, a seraph, that angel of fire, takes this glowing coal from the altar. He brings it to Isaiah and he touches his lips with that burning coal. And in that moment, what, do you, what, do you, what should happen, right? What do we expect will happen? Well, we expect Isaiah to be consumed, don't we? To burst into flames, as it were. God is holy. He is not. Surely God's consuming fire in this glowing coal will consume and destroy this sinful prophet. Surely his holiness will destroy and consume us. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Instead of consuming him, this this coal, it, it purifies him. Instead of punishing his iniquity, it takes his iniquity away. Instead of judging him for his sin, it it atones for and covers his sin. And we stand here and go, how can this be? How can God's consuming fire not destroy this sinful prophet? This fire, it should consume him, but instead it, it purifies him. God's holiness somehow cleanses his unclean lips, covers his unfaithful heart, washes his bloody hands, forgives his self-indulgent life. How? How is this sinful prophet, how am I, this sinful man, not consumed by God's holiness? How, How can I even be forgiven by it? The answer lies in the altar. The answer lies in the altar. Did you notice where that angel, where that seraph took that glowing coal from? He took it from the altar. For the altar from which that glowing coal is taken is the altar on which a sacrifice of atonement would have been made. In Leviticus 16, a bull was taken and sacrificed on an altar full of glowing coals. And the fire of God's holiness, which consumed that sacrifice, purified and saved the people. That sacrifice was consumed by the glowing coals in the place of Israel. Can you see what the seraph is now doing here in Isaiah 6? He's taking the glowing coal of God's holiness from the altar of atonement. And the fire which consumed the sacrifice purifies Israel. It, It took away its sin. 
And now that very same fire which consumed the sacrifice is purifying and saving Isaiah. God's holiness, yes, is our great help, for God will consume the nations. God's holiness is our great problem, for unless we are holy, he will also consume us. But can you see that God's holiness is also our great solution? For if we confess our unclean lips, just like Isaiah does, God will take that glowing coal and he will take away our every sin. You know, when I grew up in church, I was so used to thinking that God's holiness only judges me. But I never really saw until recently that God's holiness actually saves me. For it is God's holiness that that consumes the Lord Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice on the altar. The sacrifice who died on the cross, who was consumed not by the fires of a burning coal, but it was consumed by the wrath and the fire of God's judgment. Can you see the great transformation that is happening here? That the sinful prophet now becomes a holy prophet. His unclean lips are, are cleansed. His sinful heart is forgiven. He goes from being ruined to being redeemed, from being judged to be saved. The message of Isaiah 6 is this change is possible. Change is possible. What God did for Isaiah, he can do for you and for me. You know, this vision, it was written to God's people who were so at risk of walking away from God, who were about to chase and choose a life without God. And maybe you're sitting here today, and that's you. You're thinking about walking away from God. You're thinking about choosing a life without God. In fact, you've sinned. You've made a catastrophic mistake, and you know it. And you feel so afraid, so guilty, so ashamed. And you hate coming to church. You know you should, but you hate it. Because every time you come to church, it's as if you lift your eyes and see the King in all His holiness. And and you feel the heat of God's consuming fire. Every time you think about your sin and you feel the heat of His holiness, you just think to yourself, my sin's too deep. I can't take His holiness. I should just give up on God. I just can't change. But can you see from Isaiah, change is possible. Change is possible. Jesus was consumed by God's fire so that just like Isaiah, you and I can be purified and forgiven. You and I can be changed. What God did for Isaiah, he can do for you. His holiness, it doesn't have to consume you. It can purify you. 
It doesn't have to burn us up. It can take all our sin away. It can burn our sin away. Yes, even that one. The sin you're thinking about right now. He can burn that away as well. If only like Isaiah, we recognize our sin. If only like Isaiah, we cast ourselves on his mercies. If only like Isaiah, we say, woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. Friends, this is the vision of a holy God, a sinful prophet. And now in verses 8 to 13, the vision of a difficult mission. Just look at what Isaiah is called to do in verse 10. It makes for painful reading, doesn't it? Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Otherwise, they might understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Otherwise, they might literally repent and be saved. I mean, this is, this is tough and very uncomfortable. How can this be? How could God actually not want Judah to repent? How could he not want his people to be saved? Why would God send Isaiah to preach a message of judgment? Well, firstly, whatever this mission is, whatever this message is, we must not think that God somehow enjoys judging people. No, in Ezekiel 33, 11, always worth bearing in our hearts, this is what God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. If you want to know what God wants to do, if you want to know what God wants you to do, he doesn't want you to die. He wants you to turn from your way, turn to him and live. Or Isaiah 28, judgment, judging people is actually God's strange work. His unfamiliar task. That which he must do as a result of his character, but he does not delight in it. And we have to read this judgment against the darkness of chapters 1 to 5. Do you remember everything over the last three weeks? In chapter 1, verse 4, Judah had abandoned the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel and they turned their backs on him. They were walking away from their God and they didn't want to go back. It gets worse in chapter 5, verse 19. Some of them were even daring God, judge me. Judge me. Let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that we can see it. The people of Judah have had every opportunity to return to God. They've had every opportunity to repent and be forgiven. But time after time after time, they refused his call. They resisted his grace. They rejected his love. It really can all be summed up in that question of the vineyard last week in chapter 5, verse 4. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? What more could I, could I have done? You see, in his very nature, God is slow to anger, 
and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. That's who God is at his very heart. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And that's the judgment of these verses. It's as if Judah has burned through the wick of God's patience. Judah has stepped past that point of repentance. Judah has gone too far. Not too far for God, for God's grace is limitless, but they've gone too far for themselves. They've hardened their hearts against God. And now, every time they hear that same gospel of grace, they harden their hearts even more. You see, in many ways, it's sad. It won't really even be so much God condemning them because they'll have condemned themselves because they refuse to listen to grace. This is what Charles Spurgeon writes. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. And I think we all know this. I think we've all seen it, haven't we? We bring two friends to church or we share the gospel with two of our friends and one person is so moved to repentance for in humility they see their own sin and their need for mercy and grace and they cast themselves upon God and say, save me for I am ruined and I am a sinner. And our other friend who has heard the same gospel of grace, the same offer of repentance, hears that message and says, no, no, that is not me. And I refuse to yield my life to God. And do you realize every time they hear the gospel of grace and forgiveness over and over and over again, it's as if their hearts get harder and harder and harder and harder. Practically speaking, if you were that guy, you know it's you because as you hear it every time, you think, well, I've come too far now. I'm not turning back. I'm digging my heels in and I'm not admitting that I got it wrong in the first place. And with every time you hear that gospel again and again and again, you dig your heels in deeper and deeper and deeper. C.S. Lewis uh, writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And in chapters 1 to 5 of Isaiah, the people of Judah, they made their choice. And God said through Isaiah, thy will be done. Some of you sitting here know exactly what this feels like. Because you're that guy. You're on the cusp of walking away from God. And every week you hear God's word, you, you feel your heart begin to harden, don't you? And with every passing week that, that you hear God's grace, but resist it and choose to live apart from God, it's as if every week you come to church, your heart gets less convicted and less comforted. And now you sit here on Sunday listening to this offer of grace and forgiveness, and your heart is as hard as stone. Unconvicted. 
uncomforted, unmoved. You used to hear God's word and feel moved by it, and now you hear God's word and you feel nothing. If you can feel your heart being hardened, and you're hearing this, it's not too late. Come back to God. Come back before your heart becomes so hardened that you can't even recognize His grace when you see it. God promises to forgive your sin, to take away your guilt, to give you a whole new life. All you have to do is just say yes and come home. Don't pass that point of repentance. Judah did. And in verses 11 to 12, Isaiah must preach to them until judgment is complete. And yet in that dark night sky, we see a distant star. In verse 13, we see a great forest where only a tenth of that forest remains and is burned again. And yet, through God's consuming fire, a single stump remains. And out of that stump comes this tiny seed, a fledgling shoot, a sign that God's judgment isn't the end. And look, look at it, the seed is holy. It's everything that God is and everything that we're not. But here in this stump, through judgment, is a sign of hope that one day God will make Judah holy. One day Judah will be holy and her eyes will see her king. Now that's exactly what God has done, isn't it? Through the judgment of his son Jesus, God has made us holy. And our eyes can look at the cross and finally see our king. I love Isaiah 6 because it's that blazing sun in the solar system of this book and it shows us a vision of God in all his beauty, in all his holiness, in all his splendor. It shows us what will happen when we lift our eyes and see the king in all his beauty. We will either be like Isaiah who says, woe is me, for I am ruined and I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen my king. And he is saved by God's purifying fire. That's one option. Or we'll be like Judah, who refuses to repent and is destroyed by God's consuming fire. If you're not a Christian, in this vision, let me say, your eyes have seen your king. What will you do? Will you insist on living apart from God? Will you insist on living for yourself? Will you insist on relying on yourself? And so one day be consumed by God's fire. Or will you confess your sin? Turn to God. Rely on Him. Find in Him the the forgiveness, the grace, the purity, the cleansing that you need.
What will you do? What will you do? Friends, I want to now step back for us believers and ask this question. What might it look like for you and I to live in light of this vision? What might it look like for this vision to drive our lives? What are those core convictions that arise out of this vision that should inform how we live each and every day? Three things, three core convictions. Firstly, it all starts with this reality. We worship a holy God. We worship a holy God. When you look at our God, what do you see? You might see a God who loves you, who cares for you, a God who is your closest friend. And he is all those things. But let me ask, are you gripped by a vision of God in his holiness? Are you so compelled by his glory that that you can't help but but fall on your knees and join with the angels in, in antiphonal, super superlative praise and sing holy, holy, holy? Are you so deeply captured by by a vision of God's holiness, his purity, his righteousness, and his perfection? When, When you look at your God, are you so thoroughly convinced that no power, no king on earth can ever stand against him? When you look at Jesus, do you see a holy God? You see, friends, if we have such a small view of our big God, we'll think that he's not powerful. And if we think that he's not powerful, we'll we'll fear the powers of this world. We'll be gripped and live a life controlled by fear. Fear of being a failure. Fear of being forgotten. Fear of never being forgiven. Fear of being alone. And we will look into those fears and be consumed and overwhelmed by the darkness. But the greatest antidote to our fears is to behold our holy God. For when we see the blazing sun who is our king, his glory will dispel the darkness and cast our fears away. We will never fear being a failure. We will never fear being forgotten. We will never fear not being forgiven. We will never fear being alone for our God is with us and his glory fills not just our lives, his glory fills the whole earth. When you meet with one another and you unburden your soul to one another, do you help each other just stare into the darkness? And just look at your problems and look at your fears. Or do you actually speak the truth of Isaiah 6 to one another? Do you help each other lament the darkness but say, Hey, one look at self, ten looks at Christ. When you meet together, do you lament and despair at how hard life is and stop there? Or do you lament and despair at how hard life is and then say, No, our God is greater. He is more powerful. He is more good. He is more sovereign. He is a king above every king. Why should we be afraid? Friends, we worship a holy God. Do not stare into the darkness. 
Secondly, we live in a world under judgment. When you look at our world, what do you see? You might see the world as your oyster. A world full of opportunity and optimism. A world full of power and pleasure. You might be just like Judah and look at the world and go, man, I really want to be like that. The high bank balance, the corporate success, the big house with the many rooms, the idyllic family, the respect of everyone around you. God says, be very careful. This is a world with a hard heart, a world that is entrenched in sin, a world full of unclean lips, a world with an unfaithful heart, a world that is self-reliant, a world that is self-indulgent. A world that is under judgment. Judah so desperately wanted to be like the world. And so often, so do we. But unless this world repents, it will face God's holiness as a consuming fire. And unless we turn to our God and trust Him, so will we. Uh, many years ago, uh, the, the corporate elite of London attended a lunchtime Bible talk, a gathering at St. Helens Bishopsgate, a church in the financial centre of London. If you've seen that skyline of London, you'll know it. There's a gherkin that's there, or building that looks like a gherkin, and then St. Helens is down the bottom. A young pastor at that time, the curate, uh, was a man called William Taylor. And as all those bankers and lawyers walked in, he was starstruck. Don't know why. And as he was there, almost gawking at the amount of wealth and power flooding into the church, his boss, Dick Lucas, walked up to him, folded his arms and whispered into young William's ear, don't forget, they're all perishing. When you look at our world, what do you see? A world you want to join? A world you want to be like? Or a world under judgment that is so desperately in need of atonement? Finally, we have a mission to save sinners. When you look at, our, when you look at your future, what do you see? You might see a long and successful career, a happy family, a stable life. And that's the future you want to see. But God wants you to see that we have an even greater future, for we have a mission to save sinners. Can you see that's why God transformed Isaiah? He transformed Isaiah so that Isaiah might transform Judah. And he transformed Judah so that Judah might transform the world. What is true of Isaiah is true of Judah, is true of the world, and is true of us. Isaiah and Judah had a mission to save sinners. And so do we. We have been cleansed to be commissioned. We have been saved to be sent. We have been transformed from a life of self-indulgence to lives of self-sacrifice. 
We're, we're Christians. We don't, not, we don't use our possessions to indulge our own pleasure anymore. No, we sacrifice our possessions to purify the nations. That's our future. That's our mission. That's our vision. Are you willing for that vision to be your future? Are you willing to make your future plans not for a life of self-indulgence, but a life of self-sacrifice? Why not make your great ambition not to buy and invest in 10 properties, but to give and send 10 church planters or gospel workers around the world? Why don't you transform your dreams of traveling the world to find yourself, to going into the world to reach the nations for Christ? You see, in this vision, Isaiah wants to lift our eyes beyond our fears and beyond our sin and beyond our small, tiny, insignificant dreams. If you want to know what Isaiah 6 is saying, one look at self, ten looks at Christ. He wants us to see the king in all his beauty. And now that our eyes have seen the king, let me ask, what will we do? Will we be driven by these core convictions? Will we be so gripped by these core truths that we worship a holy God? That we live in a world under judgment and that we have a mission to save sinners? Friends, will we behold our God seated on the throne? Will we come and adore him? Will will we behold our king and see that nothing, not Uzziah, not Assyria, not our sin and not this world, nothing can compare? Will we come and will we adore him? Can I pray? Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And we behold you in your beauty and tremble at your grace. Teach us to live in light of your glory. Teach us to fix our eyes on you. Teach us to see you as our holy God. We worship a holy God. We live in a world under judgment and we have a mission to save sinners. Burn these truths by your spirit on our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.